Superman Forever Radio, Episode 112, Spotlight on Mort Weisinger, Part 2, A Conversation with Arlen Schumer. than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, people believe tall buildings at a single bound, the infant of ship town is now the man of steel, Superman! Hello, and welcome to the Superman Forever radio podcast. My name is Bob Fisher. This is a show where I talk about Superman from 1938 to rebirth and beyond. If this is your first time to the Superman Forever Radio podcast, I encourage you to check out episode 79. That's kind of where I uh, tell you who I am, how I came to Superman and comic books, and how I got the podcast. So if you're interested in that, my origin story, as they say... That's episode 79. Also, if this is the first time you've been here, the title may have scared you because it does say part two of the spotlight on Mort Weisinger. Because in the last episode, episode 111, I talked to Mort's son, Dr. Hendry Hank Weisinger, about his dad. And and boy, I had a good time with that conversation. That was a lot of fun. And uh, while this is part two of the spotlight on on Mort Weisinger, the two episodes will stand alone. You don't really have to listen to this one and that one or that one and this one in any order. They do stand alone. They're two separate interviews. Well, not really interviews, as I said before. I'm not really an interviewer, but uh, two separate conversations. One with uh, the son of Mort Weisinger, Dr. Henry Hank Weisinger. That was the last episode, episode 111. Today, you're going to be listening to a conversation I had shortly after that with writer, artist, comic book historian Arlen Schumer. And while the main focus of this particular conversation uh, is Mort Weisinger, we really went all over the Silver Age and all over the place and had just a terrific uh, uh, conversation. So uh, that's why I decided to make them two separate interviews. And this one, while focusing on Mort Weisinger, we touch on a few other things. So uh, uh, that'll be coming up in just a little bit. And when I say a little bit, I mean a little bit because, you know, it's another decently long conversation. So I'm not going to add too much here in the beginning because I really do want to get pretty much right to the conversation with Arlen Schumer. Interesting man. As I said, he is uh, a writer and an artist. Arlen has a beautiful, beautiful book called The Silver Age of Comic Book Art by Arlen Schumer. Uh, but what I, what I want to encourage you to do, you know, right up front here, uh, and I'm sure you'll be doing it right after you listen to this interview, and maybe if you're at your computer while you're listening to this, you can do it. Or, you know, if you know how to do that multitasking thing on your phone where you can be listening to one thing and doing something else, which is pretty cool. Uh, I, I urge you to check out Arlen's website. It's arlenschumer.com, A-R-L-E-N-S-C-H-U-M-E-R. Dot com. Check out Arlen's website. It's got everything there. It's got and and when when you know there are very few people who have done the kind of research and uh, uh, writing about it that Arlen Schumer has in his book in the comic the Silver Age of Comic Book Art. It's a just a gorgeous, gorgeous 
coffee table book that uh, is chock full of not only just terrific information, but page after page after page of glorious Silver Age art from, well, the best of the Silver Age guys that you can think of, from Kurt Swan to Jack Kirby to, I mean, you know, uh, Carmine Infantino. You, you list them, you think of them. And uh, it's it's a complete history thereof. But, you know, I just want to say that, you know, this is new to me as far as, you know, I've been podcasting now for years. Uh, not all that long, a little three and a half years or so. But uh, even back when I was in radio, I only did a handful of interviews. So it's not really the thing, you know, that I focus on. And I never thought about, you know, really too much doing interviews. As you've noticed, the regular listeners of the show will note that it's pretty much... Uh, uh, you know, a solo show, uh, a monologue, <laughs> if you would. Uh, I like to think of it as a dialogue. I like to think I'm having a conversation with you. And that's kind of how I think about it, uh, is that I'm having a conversation with you that, you know, is, uh, it might take a little while. I say something to you and then you will get back to me on Facebook or email to Bob at Superman Forever. Dot com. But interviewing and, and stuff is, is is not really, you know, I didn't start this even with the with the idea uh, talking to Hank last time and then Arlen this time. I didn't sit here with the whole list of questions and think, how do I want to make this narrative? How do where do I want it to go? I didn't really think of that. I thought, hey, the headline spotlight on Mort Weisinger. That's really all I went into these things saying with these. Now, obviously, I have opinions on things and I have thoughts in my head that I hope that we get around to. But it wasn't like I have a list of questions in front of me and I need to make sure that I get to all the questions. That's really not how I did this. I went in with the idea saying, I'm doing this little episode, little thing on my little podcast and uh, one of the episodes at the time was going to be one. Uh, I'm going to spotlight Mort Weisinger. I'm going to tell his history, what he did. And uh, when I started talking about this on Facebook, I was able to actually approach two people that one knew him, grew up with him, lived with him, <laughs> his son, and the other who has actually written and been published and, uh, uh, you know, and is an award-winning author. On the topic. And I happen to be Facebook friends with both of them. So one thing led to another. And when I was talking to Hank, he highly recommended that I talk to Arlen Schumer. He said, you need to talk to Arlen Schumer. You just need to really talk to Arlen Schumer. He said it three or four times during our, uh, I edited that out, of course, but he said that a couple times. And I had already planned and had already set up the, the uh, times this, that I was going to talk to Arlen. So I was really pleased to hear from Hank at the time that he wanted me to talk to Arlen. You know, I talked to these guys online and, and through text, and and uh, today you're going to be hearing from, uh, like I said, my conversation with Arlen Schumer. And you never know what to expect. And since I didn't have a whole list of questions, I just wanted to go in there and say, basically, I'm doing a spotlight on Mort Weisinger. What, tell me about Mort. What do you, what do you know about Mort? Well, with Arlen, it was just so terrific. It was fun. It was comfortable. It was, um, 
uh, it was like, <laughs> and it was challenging to be honest with you because of, of the, uh, the quickness of his mind, his mind is quick. And I have to be, I realized early on in the conversation that, Hey, uh, wake up, wake up, splash your face, get your stuff together here. <laughs> the guy's quick. He's fast. He's got lots of information. And a couple of times, and you'll hear one of them, a couple of times it became the Arlen Schumer show uh, asking me questions. It was quite funny, actually. But you'll, you'll hear some of that. You'll hear the thing. But what you're really going to hear, this is again, I hope, is just a conversation. Like I said, uh, a couple of guys talking about stuff that means something to them that they really both enjoy and uh, have a love for. Obviously, Arlen Schumer has a love for the Silver Age uh, because he's made a career of it. He does seminars, and you can catch him at comic book conventions. You can, you know, he, he's a public speaker and does a terrific slideshow, which several of them are on online. Again, I encourage you to go to arlenschumer.com. Schumer, just like Amy or Chuck, S-C-H-U-M-E-R. I didn't ask him if he was related to either Amy or Chuck. Interesting. Although both of them, I think, were mentioned at some point in the conversation. But anyway, uh, that's enough for the chit-chat up front. Just to let you know, I'm still uh, into the, uh, you know, the, the current comics. I'm still reading the current comics of Rebirth, and we'll get back to the normal Bob's thoughts on current stuff uh, in in the next episode. But I'll tell you what, let's take a real quick break, and then we'll just get right into my conversation with Arlen Schumer right after this. What? Have you ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey, and I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding comic book-filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called... It all comes back to Superman. It all comes back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It all comes back to Superman as part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube podcasting network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of Bailey Tude podcasting network can be found at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. Well, what a great idea. Michael Bailey doing a stream of consciousness. I'm just going to talk about Superman show. That's that's brilliant idea, Michael. <laughs> And it's about time. Cannot wait to hear that. Okay, here is my conversation with writer, artist, public speaker, author, and comic book historian, Arlen Schumer. 
let's start back with your history a little bit. How did you originally, were you like the rest of us, started with comic books back in the Silver Age as a kid and just said, wow, Yeah, I you like know, the very, the very first comic book cover image that I can recall as a child, one of my very first visual memories is the very first comic book was um, the 1963 25th anniversary Superman annual mm. with that great statue by yes. Kurt Swan, yeah. you know, rendered in wash tones by Jack Adler. Of course, back then we didn't even know the names of these artists oh, no because idea. DC didn't credit the artists. I, you know, we didn't know Jack Adler until I was an adult, you know, many, many years later. But I was in summer camp. I was five years old, very early to go to sleepaway camp. Uh, but my mother was a widow. My father died when I was four months old. So she sent my older brother and I to summer camp very early so that we would get some male role models, which she expected to be the, the counselors. Well, back in, that, in those days, summer camp, the bunks were full of comic books. It was like people talk about barbershops. used to go to barbershops, and they used to have a bunch of comics, and people were turned on to comics you know, there. And it was always a mix of superheroes, Archie comics. You know, back then, the world of comics had much more genres, but most of the comics were superhero comics. Right. And most of them were DCs. You know, there were some Marvels. But that Superman cover is my first visual image. And, of course, how can I not fall in love with it? Yeah, how could you not? That's just such, even today, that's become such an iconic, classic uh, cover. It's one of the single greatest images of Superman, not only by Kurt Swan himself, but, you know, that's one of the greatest images of Superman ever. Ever, ever. And and for DC never to have actually made that little statue, made a statue. To this uh, day, why don't they make it? Why don't it? they make it? To this day. Uh, you know why? Because they probably don't want to promote the Kurt Swan Superman because their current desecration of the character is so alien, pun intended, to the Kurt Swan Superman that it might as well be another character. A la Batman, I feel the same way compared to, say, the Neil Adams Batman. Right. When I look at what DC calls Batman today, which is really just a watered-down Frank Miller Dark Knight, which I always never liked, that bulky, yeah, I didn't. big Batman with a giant constructor, uh, construction worker's belt. Yeah, I you usually know? catch a lot of crap when I say I'm not a big fan of Dark Knight. Sorry, I respect Frank Miller as a storyteller, but I'm telling Agreed. you, Agreed. the fact that his version of Batman, which he wanted to be an old Kirby-esque bulky Batman. Mm -hmm. Now, I, we love Jack Kirby, yeah. but if you know about Jack Kirby, one of the few characters he couldn't really draw was Batman. <laughs> So the fact that Miller wanted to do a Miller Batman, a uh, uh, Kirby Batman, was missing the boat at the dock to begin with. <laughs> yes. And then he gives him this goddamn construction worker's belt. Gee, Batman's supposed to be an acrobat, remember? Yeah. But yeah, can you imagine swinging with that bulky construction worker's belt, that mm. utility belt that Miller gave him, which now every Batman artist feels they have to draw? That Batman has now become the the. That's archive. the problem. That's, that's the one everybody wants to the, go to. That's now. my point. Yeah. I find it sad yeah. that Miller's Batman has become the basic model now of what people think of as Batman and the Dark Knight with the big bulky boots yeah. and the wrinkly outfit and the tiny ears 
and the, uh, you know what I mean? And the yeah. stubble on the chin. This is the so-called heroic Batman, a psychotic, mumbling mess, Who a shamble. A detective. And you look at the Neil Adams Batman that I consider, and not the current Neil Adams. Right, I'm right. talking about the 1968 to 74 Neil Adams. That Batman, to me, is the defini- that's the that's the equivalent of the Kurt Swan Superman. For Batman, it's the Neil Adams Batman. I'm sorry. Now I love the Dick Sprang Batman. I love other Batman, but right. the definitive Batman is the Neil Adams Batman. I'm sorry. Right. You look at those Batman illustrations to this day, and that is the you know Sinquanon. That's that's Batman. I'm sorry. Yep. And you know that kind of gets us to the end of our uh, a little bit of our history there when that kind of Batman came. They were also changing Superman. There were some major changes, and they were getting away uh, from, and that yeah, even started earlier. Once they got rid of Weisinger, things He retired, changed. yeah, which brings us back to Weisinger right. again. So, uh, if with the Silver Anniversary issue being your first, you were kind right. of hooked on Superman, I guess, pretty early then. And comic then. books, and then the Justice League of America, and then eventually Batman, mm-hmm. and I became a real DC fan. My older brother, a year and a half older, he was an early Marvel fan mm-hmm. of Kirby. The Marvels looked too busy to me as a kid. Uh, there was something about what I call the banal simplicity of DCs that appealed to me. But we both loved the Julius Schwartz uh, DC superhero titles. So my yeah. brother loved that. But see, my brother thought these Superman books were juvenile. Mm-hmm. He only read the Schwartz superhero books uh, because he thought those were like smart. Mm-hmm. And then he was a Marvel fan well, as the 60s went on. But I was a big DC fan. Big Kurt Swan fan back when we didn't even know his name. Right. And, um, you know, I was able to recognize the art styles when George Klein stopped inking him. I was 10 years old, but I knew. We didn't know the name George Klein, but I knew the inking deteriorated. We knew the difference. Yes, we knew the difference. We knew. I could tell that the same basic guy drew, and I used to ask myself these questions. I would say, it looks like the same guy drew that Jimmy Olsen comic that drew the action right. comic, but right. something different, but different and, from this other Jimmy Olsen. But you don't artist. realize until you're older that, Oh, it was Forte that, that inked that one. Well, we, again, DC didn't this. reveal the names, but yeah. you know, it's like the, um, it's like the uh, Batman reprint annuals back then. They didn't give credits, but everything was signed. Bob Kane, Bob Kane? but we knew Dick Sprang. We didn't know his name, but right. we knew he was the good Batman artist in the same <laughs> way that fans of that Carl Barks, Donald Duck stuff, they refer to him as the good duck artist yes. without knowing his name is Carl Barks. Yes. By the way, getting back to Dick Sprang, I just yeah. want to put a little asterisk. It only occurred to me when I was an adult how absolutely pornographic his name is. Yes. Dick Sprang. Dick's- and by the way, he could have been Richard Sprang. Yeah. He chose Dick Sprang. Dick, I know, I know. It didn't occur to me either until I was talking to a guy. I couldn't have been... Of just even a few years ago. That's I mean, my not, point. Yeah. I was an adult, and I'm like, Dick Sprang. Yeah, it didn't me? occur to me. Never occurred to me until... A, uh, I think Maybe was, that's why DC didn't promote the names, because <laughs> right. they thought Dick Sprang, like nobody would believe it. Right. Well, you know, you mentioned you had an older brother who was uh, yeah. into Marvel. Uh, right. I had an older cousin who was about a year and a half older than me, who uh, by 60... 
four. I'm uh, 12, so he was already right. into you know Marvel, and Marvel, he would say, yeah. "Oh, you got to be reading these." And he'd give me a Spider-Man, right. or he'd give me a Fantastic right. Four and X-Men or something, and I would just thumb through it. And the very first thing I would say would be, and this is how I say it today, kind of jokingly, that Marvel had too many thought bubbles. Well, that's what I said. Remember I said they were too busy looking. Too busy. I remember Marvel had a lot of words. And there was something, like I said, there was a banal simplicity to the DC stuff that was a little more, when you're a kid, seductive. Yes. And the fact that, you know, it seemed like every one of the Marvel superheroes had these incredible powers that they didn't want. They were all upset. Oh, I'm poor me. I have these superpowers. Okay, but isn't that ironic, Bob, that that became the norm? I know, and now that is the norm, and that just... That's my point. That is the crisis in all portrayals of the hero. They don't know how to do a hero. You know, this gets back to Superman 1. They, They don't know how to do a hero who's not bitterly ironic and self-referential, and it's kind of pure. The, and that's what the definition of the anti-hero is. He's a hero who doubts and has faults. And that became the Marvel's successful formula. But it's because the DC guys were too superheroic and too perfect. Too perfect. In fact, you hear that all the time, even from modern writers saying... But well, that was America in general. Exactly. And they want to draw Batman. They want Vietnam. to write for Batman because they say, oh, there's so many... Uh, Superman's too perfect. Right. Uh, no, you're just right. not... But you, right. But you see, it's got, the pendulum has swung now yeah. so far in the other direction that we've forgotten what it means to truly be a hero. And be heroic and not be goofy and stupid. That's why I hated the camp approach. And that's why the Connery Bond was so great, because he was a great heroic um, model, and he wasn't doubting himself. He was like cocksure, pun intended. Exactly, exactly. What do you think Mort Weisinger, starting getting back to Mort, in the yeah. earliest... In his earliest days, now he started at DC in 1940. Now prior to that, and then, and we've talked a little bit. You and I haven't, but on the show we've talked a little bit about his earlier, how Mort Weisinger actually started and how he got to DC, and how he and his buddy Julie Schwartz and some of the guys were doing science fiction fan magazines. And it was that's, the original Schwartz and Weisinger did the first fanzine. Uh, uh, that was who published. Uh, Siegel and Schuster's thing. Wasn't that Weisinger and Schwartz? Yes. And you see, this is the thing that is so staggering to me when you start to look into this stuff, that this little group of men, and when you really get down to just these two guys, really, Weisinger... They created the comic book industry, the superhero as we know it. Everybody at that time, uh, Siegel and Schuster included... We're thinking, well, I'd like the Superman comic. Yeah, that's nice that he's got his own comic, but I want the Daily Strip. I want Superman in the newspapers. Of course. Everything was about making it, because that's where the money was. Exactly. That's where the respect was, et cetera, et cetera. Because before that, it was just Pulp. Okay, but the, he the starts editing Pulp. him in 1940. He so, becomes an editor of Superman. So he's two years after, and, right. and Superman was already getting big. He was he was already on the radio by the time Weisinger but, got there. But he didn't really come into his own with Superman, because I think that Whitney Ellsworth was really calling the shots. I think Weisinger was really just a manager. It's really not until 58 when he begins all those, you know, Silver Age innovations, 
when he brings in the ex-Captain Marvel guys, which is irony upon irony. But my point is, Weisinger's career vis-a-vis Superman... See, again, I don't know Superman that well before the Silver Age. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know how much Weisinger influenced the comics themselves, like he influenced from 1958 to 1970. That's like a whole other Weisinger. That's a whole other Weisinger. But my question is... So what happened in 58, 57? Uh In other words, what was he doing before that on Superman? Was he as influential in the development of the Superman mythos before 57? Well, that was one of my questions to, um, to, to Hank. His, his son, is what did an editor do early on? How much control of the actual character? See, but he, he only knows Silver Age 2 exactly. because he was born in 48. He becomes aware. You know, he really becomes aware of what his father's doing when his father's in his prime. Absolutely. I'm just saying, I don't know the Superman history in the comics pre-Silver Age enough to know what Weisinger really contributed as an editor. We all know all about the Silver Age Weisinger, well, some of the but we don't really I know have... too much about 1940 to 57 Weisinger, do one we? Of, one of the things that, that I have found in my uh, research of the early Weisinger stuff is that when he came on in 1940 as an editor, one of the first things he did was they, he, he must have had some sort of veto power even then, because um, uh, according to this one source online, um, uh, uh, Jerry Siegel, once again, for the second or third time, submitted a Superboy story in 1940, and Mort Weisinger vetoed it. Now, the, the story I've heard is that he vetoed it, and then the quote goes, and this might have been on comic book resources or something, but the, the, the quote that they, everybody keeps using, I've seen three or four times, other places, is that Weisinger vetoed Siegel's Superboy because it would diminish the character and the goodwill they have established for the character of Superman. And that's where they keep ending the quote. And, you, and they're blaming Weisinger. And they're saying in a negative turn that we could have had Superboy in 1940, four years before, blah, 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 blaming Weisinger. And the well, story I've heard... the notion of branding and brand extension, as we call it in modern marketing terms, I guess was not really known back then. That, not... hey, you know, if you've got, you know, like they weren't doing Bat Boy, they had Robin, I guess, but... Right. You know what I mean? It's like you would think, well, if Batman has Robin, why wouldn't Superman have a Superboy? Like you would think. Yes. That's what they wanted to capitalize on. But but maybe he vetoed the idea of a young Superboy. Maybe they were thinking he would be more like a Robin versus the idea of when super, you know, the adventures of Superman when he was a boy. You see, maybe that was the breakthrough. Well, the second that part they were always thinking Superman would have, like Kid Flash, like a concurrent Flash with him. With him. Maybe well, that was the radical yeah. idea that, no, 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 it's not Superman with a Superboy sidekick. It's Superboy in his own adventures back when Superman was young. Exactly. Well, see, that's what Siegel was doing. He was saying, this is Superman when he was a boy. Right, but they were... Maybe what Weisinger vetoed was maybe they were thinking it was more like a young super sidekick. 
who well, was no, a super why he boy. vetoed it, according to the, the story, and there was a brief yeah. little script, was that the Superboy that Siegel kept writing and turning in and getting vetoed was a prankster, a young, mischievous, almost delinquent who, who used Okay, see, that I powers. didn't know. He used well, his bottom super- line is the yeah. fear of Weisinger is not my bailiwick. So let's talk about the Weisinger I do know. Let's get there. So you're familiar and you're prime and, and, and the name of your book, in fact, you're, you're one of the leading authorities on the silver age of comic books. That plus 350 gets me a latte at Starbucks. <laughs> but yes, I do consider myself to be the curator of the silver age in the sense of Somebody's got to keep these guys alive. You know, Infantino died in 13. Cuber died in 12. The young Turks, Steranko and Adams, are now 75-year-old men. It's like, you know, people forget who these guys were. Look at, look at Kurt Swan's memory. Mm. How, many people, how many young comic fans reading DC's current Superman know the, who the hell Kurt Swan is? No, no, they don't. And if they, they certainly do, don't they know they who Mort Weisinger like is. No, not at all. But my, but, you know, my tell point them is, that. Right. So anyway, but yes, so I'm sort of proud of the idea that with my book and my lectures and the things that I do, I've taken it upon myself to be like, hey, I'm going to keep those guys alive because they are our Renaissance masters. The way we look back on the Renaissance masters 400 years ago of, you know, Da Vinci and Raphael and, you know, those guys, it's like, these are our Renaissance masters. You know, Kirby is our Michelangelo, and Neil Adams and Hubert, and you know, so, so I'm gonna do. Uh, you know, whether I get any financial remuneration or critical reward, I'm gonna do it because I love their work. I know it was influential on a generation, and continues to be. And it's the greatest body of comic book art ever. I think. Ever. And I think I tend to agree with you that in my own personal headcanon and my own personal life, Superman roughly from 56, 57, 58 to... When Swan starts drawing him, basically. Yeah, when Swan, basically when Swan takes over and becomes the regular... The covers begin in late 57. Right. And basically, once Swan... once See, you got to have a credit. Once he saw saw the Swan Superman... Mm -hmm and how realistic it was compared to the barrel-chested Wayne Boring right, version. Right. And, you know, ten years later, when Weisinger, when, they, when Infantino stuck Neil Adams' artwork under his nose and, and gave you know, Neil a shot, Weisinger made him the cover boy overnight in 1967, the same way ten years earlier he made Swan the cover boy overnight, of his entire Superman line. And for the same reason. That's least, my point. Yeah. The realism. The realism. So you got to give Weisinger credit. This gets back into Weisinger's story of evaluating his contributions. But on the positive side, on the plus side of the ledger, the guy knew talent when he saw it and acted on it immediately. And at a time when he could do that. He had the power right. and authority at DC by that point. Now, the problem is he didn't, once he loved those artists, he didn't let anybody else in. Right. You know, he didn't let, you know, Neil Adams, like, they had to practically break down Weisinger's door to get Weisinger to say, like, look at this guy, the guy can draw. Let him do a Superman. You know, the famous Neil story is that he said to Weisinger, listen, I know, you know, you're a little wary of trusting me, but 
let me just do one cover for you. If you like it, great. We'll go from there. Well, like I said, Weisinger took a look at that first cover, yeah. and he basically said, okay, I want you to do all of my covers. Yeah. Overnight. Overnight. In the fall of 67, he becomes the, the Superman family cover artist. Overnight. For months. And I think one of the big differences, though, is that I know early on when when Swan became a, the regular cover artist, he wasn't right. still yet doing all the interiors. You still had Wayne yeah. Boring, Al Plastino. You had all these sure. other guys sure. doing. But he the, did plenty of interiors. Oh, yes, he did plenty. He did, and in the early sixties, so much and Jimmy on, Olsen, so much Superboy. It's just staggering. it boggles my mind how much Jimmy Olsen and Superboy Swan did. In the time that he had to do them. That's another thing. Along with all those covers. Staggering. I mean, absolutely it really staggering. is a staggering amount of work. I mean, it's, he's D, he was DC's Kirby, pretty much. Absolutely. And Weisinger, to bring it back to him, I think even in the early 50s, when when we had now the Comics Code and and What's-His-Face making all, Wortham, making all Wortham, of this... Yeah making all of these, right. you know, things. So right. the comics themselves had to start right. what they said they were going to, you know, police themselves so that they wouldn't do it, which was a smart yeah, move. Put that on. But that was also something that editors and publishers had to work around. You could no longer show certain things in the comics and say certain stuff. So Weisinger sometimes I think gets blamed and DC entirely gets blamed for being quote more childish or juvenile than Marvel during the sixties. Well, that's big, right. But you see that paved the way for Marvel to be in contrast to DC by being more realistic and more with the snappy dialogue because DC bent over so backwards to please the comics code, you know, that they so sanitized the material right. that you know, it's funny, on, my, on the groups that I run on Facebook about comics history, we get into this debate all the time. People who don't like Stan Lee's dialogue, you know, they, in retrospect, you look at Lee's dialogue back then, yeah, a lot of it's corny and pseudo-hip. But people forget to really give Lee his due in terms of just his dialogue only. I'm not talking about the stories, which, as you know, I believe Kirby and Ditko and those guys, they did the stories, and Lee came in and dialed. I don't think Lee created a thing. But the point I'm trying to make is, if you just take his contributions as the guy that wrote the dialogue for those Marvel books and set the editorial tone a la EC Comics of a generation before, those two things, his salesmanship, his editorship, the editorial voice, and the voice of the dialogue, the dialogue in those early Marvel books, you can only judge compared to the wooden, stilted dialogue being written over at DC because it was still postcode. Everything was sanitized. Everything was flat and dull and boring. But again, so was most American television. Right. You know, everything, rock and roll music, you know, after they got rid of Elvis and Chuck Berry, you know, in the early 60s, when Marvel appeared, the rest of the culture was flat, dull, conservative, Pat shallow. Boone. It was Pat Boone. Right. We needed Elvis. So along comes Stan Lee with his, you know, beboppy dialogue and trying to be a little witty and a little, and saying, listen, let's liven up the superhero dialogue a little. You read, though, you know, you can only judge, and, and that's why Marvel became Marvel, because 
kids weren't used to that kind of fresh, sassy dialogue. And, and as much as I don't like Stan Lee because of how he grabbed the credit for creating the stories and the characters, he should have been very happy with his place in history as the guy that wrote the dialogue and the editorial voice that made Marvel successful. You know, I always say the term Marvel Comics. Kirby and Ditko did the comics. Stan Lee did the Marvel. <laughs> you follow me? Yeah, absolutely. That's and the Marvel is what I'm talking about, the editorial voice, the dialogue. That's what made Marvel fresh, but only in comparison to the early 60s DC Comics, which, again, had beautiful art. Right. But, you know, take, take Adam Strange. The art was gorgeous, Infantino Anderson, right? Mm -hmm. But when you actually read the dialogue that the characters are spouting, it is as dull and boring as the art was lush and beautiful. So people forget that, that that's why Marvel made such an impact. The early Kirby art, to me, was kind of crude. I don't like Kirby till Chick Stone starts thinking him in 1964. Yeah, I have a hard but, time with early Marvel artwork. But that's my point. But what made early Marvel start to catch on was Lee's dialogue and the editorial voice, which was a breath of fresh air compared to the stodgy, stilted, artificial, fake, phony DC comics. Do I you, hate to say it. Yeah, but the think- art was nice. But the stories, the di- I mean, the stories were good in the sense it was all plot heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the DC style. Right. Gimmicky stories, plot heavy, but everything tied it up at the end. But that was, again, American movies. They all had happy endings, right? You're right. Do you think DC... The music, you know, everything was post-war. Everything was happy, hunky-dory, Right. Right. And that's the way DC Comics were. Do you think DC stayed in that mindset of uh, their audience? They still felt their audience was kids and that every four or five years it was turning over again. So you could just reprint older shows. I mean, older Until Marvel hit them in the face with the fact that, hey, Marvel's skewing older. They're getting college-age kids. And then that's why Infantino's brought in to make... DC hip in the late 60s to compete with Marvel, and then he says, okay, so Marvel has superheroes with super problems, to quote the famous uh, um, Herald Tribune article in 66, you know what I'm referencing? No, I Superheroes with super problems. No, but I love the title, Superhero with Super Problems. That was the first mainstream article about Marvel Comics and their success, and it appeared the week the Batman TV show debuted. And that's the article where wow. Stan Lee, this is Steve Ditko in public, when he, they talk about Ditko plotting the stories. Do you know about all this? I've heard those stories. I didn't know okay, it came from what, this. Okay, Bob? This is for another podcast when we talk about that, because that's a whole other podcast. We're oh. getting sidetracked off of Weisinger. S- yeah, super superheroes with super problems. Boy, that's... Yes, but the point I want to make is, so Infantino's answer to that was, Oh, you want superheroes with super problems? I'll start killing them. You know, you can't have more of a problem than being killed. Than being killed, right. And then, but I, I use this term, he had all the DC heroes crying and dying. <laughs> they were crying about their problems with literal tears in their eyes. Yeah. Because Infantino felt he had to go one step further. Like, you want superheroes complaining about their problems? I'll have them crying about their problems. Yeah. 
with real tears streaming down their faces. So all of a sudden, at the end of the 60s, you get all these DC covers with the heroes crying. Superboy and, and then Supergirl he starts, song. you know, then they're dying all the time. You know, they're all down on the ground in very passive, inferior positions. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean, yes. Right, which was, again, not the Weisinger Superman style, which is to present Superman very heroically. Uh, what do you think Weisinger's um, strongest, you know, what, what was his strongest part of his tenure? I mean, he was there 30 years. Okay, well, did you read my verbal visual essay, Requiem for Weisinger? I did, and, okay. uh, but I'm not, so sure what are you my, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how many of my listeners have. So I want, I okay. want to hear well, you talk you read it, in a little bit of a... Uh, in Mort's own words, I used Mort's own words whenever he described his philosophies about Superman or what he was aiming to do as an editor, and then I matched it with appropriate Kurt Swan images, and I created this 16-page verbal visual essay, I would call it. And that's online. Requiem for Weisinger, because, you know, growing up and finally hearing his name and learning about who he was, and, you know, Weisinger was a very polarizing figure, maybe the most polarizing figure other than Bob Kane and Stan Lee mm -hmm. is Mort Weisinger in the sense of, and it's interesting, they all come out of that same, you know, mix of, you know, Brooklyn, you know, mm -hmm. You know, uh, DeWitt Clinton, Heist, you know, that whole Brooklyn area, they all come out of there. Stan Lee, Will Eisner, Bob Kane, you know, they're all, they all came out of there. Anyway, but Weisinger was, his comics were loved, but personally, he was, like, hated. You know, when I talked to people who, um, who worked with him, I mentioned his name to Irwin Hayson a couple of years ago, and Hayson actually turned red. Hmm. when I mentioned Weisinger's name. And as you know, if you know Weisinger and the history, the people that worked with him hated him. You know, he had a very horrible reputation. And we only found this out as fans years and years later. As yeah, stories a, lot, a lot later. This is one of the things that, that uh, I guess, 15 years ago or so, I heard started hearing stories, and I right. and it just blew they, me they, away. They, right. They began, they began to circulate over the years. And yeah. It mounted this very terrible portrait of him, and yeah. the bottom line is, as a fan growing up, like we all did with his comics and not knowing these things, there was the Weisinger Superman that, of the comics, and then there was the Weisinger the editor, the person that we began to hear these horrible stories of. And, and when I started to do these verbal visual essays on comic history, um, you know, 15 years ago or so, it just occurred to me, like, you know, one of these days I'd like to do a thing about Weisinger because there's got to be a way to kind of figure this out. How could a guy that was so hated produce comics that were so universally loved. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's paradox a, of Mord Weisinger. That's a very good question, and the more I started to... He is large, he contains multitudes, to quote Walt Whitman, I believe. You know what I mean? That's Weisinger, is that you look at those Superman books. Now, here's the thing. For every great Weisinger Superman story, you got to wade through about 25 <laughs> horrible ones, or, for, you know, yeah. or forgettable ones, or... You know, the wise, a lot of them were drawn beautifully by Kurt Swan, but they're forgettable. Yeah, they, weren't all, they weren't all written by Edmund Hamilton. So, but, Right. The bottom <laughs> line is, 
you know, that's how you have to look at, you know, Weisinger. It's like, you know, you can pull out a bunch of great stories, memorable things. But like I said, the bulk of his output was commercial, crappy comics. I hate to say it. That was the Superman DC formula. Well, you know, the- endless plas- you know, I mean, again, you know, every story started the same way. One day in Metropolis, <laughs> right. you know, and right. then, you know, by the end of the story, the criminals in jail. And I mean, every story, you know, was like that. And every Lois Lane story was, you know, how can I marry him? What's the secret identity? Okay. I mean, Lois but that Lane, was the Lois formula. Lane. The formula worked. It would what, work. The, you know, if it, it ain't worked. broke, don't fix it. it That's worked. the theme of... Everything back then. Well, I try to tell my. If it younger, wasn't broke, you didn't fix it. I try to tell my younger friends who are uh, into Superman modern, but can't quite get a hold on Lois Lane or Jimmy Olsen comics of the past. Yeah. And I tell them, well, before you pick up that comic, get into the mindset that you're about to watch an episode of I Love Lucy. Right. That's what Lois Lane comics are. That's not a of Superman course. comic. About, well, it was it was variation. It was variation within a formula. Yeah, it's a sitcom. Jimmy right, Wilson, but mostly it was the formula. It was give absolutely. the people what they want. Absolutely. And absolutely. do it slickly. You know, the standards were those DC standards. The art had to be of a certain standard. But don't ruffle the feathers. Right. You know, and they didn't know what characterization no. was. The writers, they were pulp writers that wrote action stories. It was all plot and action. It was basically pulp stories adapted to comics. Well, I think one of the things that, and again, coming back to Mort, that I appreciate uh, looking back on this uh since doing this show, it's like, I want to talk about this story or that story. And I go and search cause you have to do now research to find out who wrote it. I mean, most of us know by look now who Kurt Swan and Kurt Schaffenberger, and we know these guys now, uh, but right. we don't always know who wrote the story. We got to go look right. that up and find yeah. out if somebody's found that. Well, I'm right. surprised how many of my favorite uh, stories of that time period were written by Edmund Hamilton. Now I'm a big, well, sci- most of them because of that, science fiction background i love science fiction and to me that and a lot of those great stories were written by jerry siegel exactly and that's the thing that blows me away is i see this all the time where uh friends of mine will say oh the only great superman is the original golden age written by jerry siegel and i'm saying wait a minute jerry siegel also wrote the deaths of superman in 1961 they don't know the history also wrote i know because most comic fans don't know the history because the history is relatively obscure. They haven't read Steranko's history of comics. They haven't read, you know, the basic stuff. And also, I got to tell you, other than my book, there's not a lot about the Silver Age in terms of comic history. Comic history has been so lopsided in favor of the Golden Age, in favor of the EC era, yes. and in favor of actually current comics. But in terms of the history of the Silver Age... There's not that much. No, there really isn't. You really have to dig and, and you know. Uh, For instance, the story of who wrote all those Superman books and, and the fact that Jerry Siegel came back to D.C. after he was blackballed, you know, that's relatively esoteric information. Right. A lot of people do not know that Jerry Siegel continued I bear, to write listen, I barely know that information, and I consider myself, remember, right. a self-styled, <laughs> exactly. you know, Silver Age guy. But there's plenty of Silver Age I don't know because 
there's not a lot written about. In other words, look at look at the book Men of Tomorrow by Gerard Jones. Great book. That's about the golden age. Where is the 1960s version of Men of Tomorrow? It's, Guess what? It doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. There's an opening. My for book you. is the best book about the Silver Age, but it's not a narrative telling a historical story like, you know, Men of Tomorrow or even like Steranko's book. And it's hard like now, for instance, those, those people don't if, exist. If, if, what, what, we need, what we need is the Steranko version. Instead of the Golden Age, we need the Steranko Silver Age history book, which, like I said, would contain stories like this about how Jerry Siegel came back groveling, looking for work, and Weisinger, you know, in his cruelty, mm-hmm. you know, would treat him like shit. Right. Yeah, exactly. And but that when I start digging into Weisinger, that's what I find out is that uh, despite being idolized by certain people, uh, the people who worked for him uh, were not crazy about Mort Weisinger. They didn't okay, like so the way he handled the artist. They didn't okay, like the so way here's, he stole so here's material the, apparently. So here's the reason for that, Bob. And I found this out when I talked and, and interviewed Hank Weisinger. When, he, when I said to Hank, I go, Hank, everything I've read and heard, your father berated the people he worked with. And I know that was the old school style of management mm-hmm. where you berated your workers and that's how you got them to perform. You know, it's kind of like the slave master whipping the slaves. Right. It's like maybe if I whip them and hurt them, they'll perform better. Well, obviously, that was a philosophy that was around for how many millennium? Forever. In the human race? <laughs> right. right. You know, if you berate your workers, they'll perform better. If you threaten them, like, they'll do better. Yeah. You know, we, we live in an enlightened era of only, like, I would say, you know, the post-war era where that idea that you don't berate your workers has become challenged, you know? Yes. So Weisinger was old school. Old school. Where you berated your talent. And look, the movie moguls. You know, I just finished watching this great Betty and Joan thing. Did you watch that? Yes. Wasn't that great? Great. But, you know, the movie moguls berated their stars and treated them like shit. You know, look at record companies and how they treated their musicians. You know, the talent has always been treated like shit by the very people making money off them. Always, always. And they're always the threat of, well, if you don't want to write this story, there's a hundred guys waiting in line right now to write it. So I'm an artist. Artists have been treated like shit. You know, Robert Crumb, God bless him, did a credible story years ago about what it was like to be an artist back in caveman times. Mm. And he drew himself as the caveman artist, of course. So the alpha males who hunted the bison, they got the girls, they got the prime cuts of meat. And then the artist who was painting their story on the cave wall, he got the scraps when the alpha males were done. Right. You know, with the prime cuts. And it's like, Crumb's whole point was, has anything changed? No. 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 They're wearing suits now, but it's still the alpha male right. barking at It's the same thing, an artist whose work outlives the producers, you know, that paid for it. Absolutely. You know, nobody remembers the Pope who hired Michelangelo to do the Sistine Chapel, but we remember the Sistine Chapel. That is a great analogy. But yeah, but I'm sure he got paid relatively shit for that fucking piece of work that he did on his back. Yeah, right? Exactly. 
Exactly. The point is, yeah, nothing's changed. So back to Jerry Siegel. So that was Weisinger's management style. So I brought this up to Hank Weisinger. I go, Hank, you know, how is it? And, and Hank would protest, but Arlen, that's not what he was like at home. I knew of him as the loving father. And I said, Hank, but you told me that he berated you and your sister. And he goes, well, yeah, but he also loved us. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but Hank, did he show that love to the people he worked with? In other words, Bob, he gave his own children the beration and the love. Right. But the people Weisinger worked with only got the beration, none of the love. Right. And that's the basic problem and the reason why Weisinger is so hated because the people that love his comics didn't work with him and don't know what he did with the people he worked with. And the people that he worked with who didn't get the love give a shit about how the comics turned out and the fact that the comics inspired and brought so much joy to people. They only know the Weisinger that they had to work with. So when I mentioned Weisinger's name to Irwin Hasen, for instance, he literally turned red. Even after all these years? it's All these years. Yeah. This was like about 10 years ago. You know, Hasen died a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah. I mentioned, oh, I'm working on you know, with Hank Weisinger. Blah, blah, blah. And he was like, Weisinger! And he turned red. Amazing. So Absolutely. that'll tell you all you need to know, that all those Weisinger stories about, you know, he gave Kurt Swan migraines. You know about that story? No, tell that story. So in the 50s, when he starts working with Weisinger, um, Weisinger is treating Swan like he treated everybody, like shit. And it was giving Swan migraines. And I think whether it was his wife at the time or somebody said, you got to just stand up to him. And like, Weisinger was a bully. And what do you do with a bully? You've got to basically stand up to them. To, yeah. And supposedly uh, Swan took the advice, went in the next day, stood up to Weisinger, and Weisinger even said, you know, ever since then, you know, you know, um, he got along with Weisinger and Swan got along with him and blah, blah, blah. And the migraines disappeared. Wonderful. I, so, I, yeah, I can't imagine um, uh, treating somebody like Kurt Swan in any other way you, other than with respect. Right. But that tells you the kind of guy was. But you know, was. I get a mental image sometimes uh, at that time period. Uh, you kind of even, and it's been reinforced with, you know, shows like Mad Men. But at that time period, you had this, I get this mental image of Weisinger coming into work in, at downtown Manhattan, Lexington Avenue, I guess, in the 50s and 60s. 575 Lexington Lexington Avenue. (laughs) Yeah, we know those numbers even. It was like like the address of the Emerald City. It really was. You know, 575 Lexington Avenue. You know, we could do a whole podcast about the time my mother took my brother and I in the spring of 1967 up to the D.C. offices for one of their weekly tours that they used to give. I think Thursdays at 11 o'clock. And, uh, that, I was like nine years old that year, and that oh was like visiting like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be Disneyland, or it's just got to be the yeah, best. Yeah, but that, that's a podcast we could do just on that. Well, but I do get this mental image of a 50s office building where Weisinger's got his office. Maybe next door to him is Julie Schwartz. Right. And then there's a hall out there, and then there's a big office, and guys are sitting at cubicles, not cubicles, but they're sitting at drawing tables, and they're sitting at typewriters. Right, right. And guys all day, they, they... 
they go to work, they put their suit and tie well, on. Well, I think the creator, most, most of the writers and the artists actually work from home. Mm. The, the, the offices have production people. Okay, so even then, you know, the artists... Stuff like that. And, and the editors were there editing the book. You know, they right. were going over the artwork. But the act, most of the artists and writers, even back in that day, were freelancers who worked from home. They would come into the office, have meetings, drop off, have plotting... Se- the writers would come in and have these mm-hmm. plotting sessions with Schwartz and Weisinger back like the pulp days. They'd go out to lunch and shit like that. But you know what I mean? Very few artists and writers from what I've read actually worked in the offices. Same thing with Marvel, by the way. Mm -hmm. You know, Stan was successful at building this image of the merry bullpen. Right. But the bullpen was really the production people. Yeah, that was Doing the pay stuffs and the, you know, the color, you know, some of the coloring and this and that. Mm -hmm. But the actual artists and writers were at home working. So even even back then, and I think that's the verify when you see pictures of Kurt Swan at his table, and, right? Uh, uh, et cetera, all the other artists that you've seen from that time period. Uh, I always got the feeling they were at home. I thought, is that his home studio? It's got a nice window. If that's in New York, I believe so. Yeah, and I live in Westport, Connecticut, and that's where I think Swan lived mm. in his heyday as Superman artist was here in Westport. Well, that's that's one of the things that even as a Superman fan to this day, it still bothers me that I don't have a single piece of original Kurt Swan art, and uh, yeah. that that's yeah. it's out um, of sight back, now. You, hey, back in those days, you know, Schwartz yeah. would give away entire stories of original art if you wrote a good letter that he published. Do you believe uh, it? Uh, Do you imagine uh, going to your mailbox one day and uh, getting back when the art was twice up? Uh, can you imagine getting an entire Infantino Anderson mystery in space story in the mail because you wrote a letter? <laughs> I know. Amazing. Well, one of the things that, that Hank did verify for me, when I was a kid, sometimes I would be reading the letter columns and I thought they would make up the stories. And then a friend of mine actually had one of his published and I thought, oh, they're real. Well, Hank said, well, some of them were real, some of them were made up. If if they wanted to promote a story coming up, they would just invent little Joe Smith from Tennessee asking, gee, when are we going to see Lois with blonde hair? Well, Bob, let's get back to what I call the Weisinger worldview. Let's do that. Because that's really, what was it about the Weisinger books that were so loved? Good question. What, what was it? What, what offset historically, uh, you know, the horrible aspects of what's in the plus column. We know what's in the negative column. What's in the plus column? Of the Weisinger era of comic books? Yeah. Isn't uh, that what we're here to yeah, talk about? I, well, to me, it's the... Who's it's, running this podcast? Me yeah. or you? <laughs> well, I have my doubts, to be honest. The uh, Well, to me, it's the, it's the fantasy aspects. It's the break from reality. It's the science fiction and fantasy aspects. It's Superman having ultimate power to do anything he wants, and yet he still chooses to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That, to me, is Superman. Now, how much of that was Weisinger keeping that little attitude going, or was it he's in the bullpen here, not the bullpen, but he's in the in the trenches every day trying to corral his writers, and he's saying, Ed Hamilton, I need a story about red kryptonite. Go do it. Or did he do more than that? Did did Weisinger actually have a plot and then assign a guy to, talk, to fill in the gaps? Well, what okay. was the what, procedure? From what we know... 
just like in the pulps, he would they would come up with the covers first and write stories around them. That was both. That was the Weisinger. Well, wasn't that that was the Julius Schwartz technique in the Silver Age? Wasn't that the, wasn't that the Weisinger technique too? Because again, they both came out of the same pulp soup together. See, that's what I have heard is that they would uh, see an image or sometimes an artist, even Kurt or Schaffenberg or one of the guys would draw uh, a cover or just well, a frame, yeah. a still well, image. Well, but again, who gave them the idea for the cover? Because Bingo. there's very little documented history. That's the point. We don't really know, like, who did what, which came first. Mm-mm. But the bottom line is, I think... I, and again, I'm not really an expert because there's so very little information. I don't think anybody knows for sure is, did they come up with the covers first and write stories around them? I think that's more well known about Schwartz than it is about Weisinger. Right. But to tell you the truth, I don't really know who knows. You'd have to talk to like a Paul Levitz or a Michael Uslan or some of the people that were actually there at the tail end of the Silver Age, mm-hmm. how did DC stories get written? Like all those Dick Sprang Batman stories. You know, he was living in Arizona. They sent him scripts, and he drew them up. You know, I don't know how DC produced their stories. You know, because, again, there's so little information, and I'm not really an expert in that, that depth of history. So whether Weisinger... You know, how did he commission stories for all those books every month? I don't know. Right. But the Weisinger worldview that I want to keep getting back to is what made his books loved. And what was that worldview? What was that thing that we speak well about when we speak about the Weisinger, Kurt Swan, Superman? I'm interviewing you you now. You should be interviewing me about it. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what what I'm asking. I'm turning it. What is the Weisinger worldview? Why did we love them? Well, was it simply again, because of their simplicity? From my research, when I did my, my thing and talking to Hank and my own growing up with Weisinger Superman, the things I felt, the things I remembered, why, why do we love the Weisinger Superman books, even though a lot of the stories were corny and old-fashioned and stilted? There are the stories that we love. So when we look at the stories that we love, what do we love about them? When I think of the Weisinger Superman a handful of stories pop up, and they're all the usual suspects. Superman Red, Superman Blue. When Superman returns to Krypton, the death of Superman. Am I right? Am yeah, I absolutely. off Weisinger's greatest hits? Absolutely. And when you look at those stories, what do they all share in common? What do they have? First, like all the DC stories, which were plot-heavy and character... It, you know, no characterization, really, but they were plot-heavy and gimmick-heavy. But all those stories had beginnings, middles, and ends. Many of the best stories were full length. They weren't short stories. You know, they were book length. Mm -hmm. Death of Superman, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, Superman Returns to Krypton and the Candor stories and all that. They were book length stories and, you know, they they were meaty. Those Gardner Fox Justice Leagues were meaty Meaty stories. stories, Yes. Beginnings, middle, end. No characterization to speak of. Every hero, the same dialogue, but we didn't care. We didn't know any better until we started reading Marvel comics. The bottom line is, you know, the best of the Weisinger output, the one great story after 25 lousy ones was one of the ones we're talking about. 
and they had a lot of humanity in them. They had a lot of, you know, the big issues, life and death. You know, all those images of statues and cemeteries and heroes dying. You know, the Weisinger era is filled with all this, like, kind of drama, in a way, of, um, you know, the tragedy of Superman not being able to save his parents and not being able to enlarge the bottle city of Candor. You know, this was the stuff we cared about, but with Kurt Swan's realistic drawing, we started to feel yes. the stories a little bit more. Like the death of Superman, you know, mm. Swan's ability to draw, you know, Superman in a glass case, uh, you know, with a funeral procession and all those scenes and the characters crying, real tears, and you can feel the emotion because of Swan's, you know, he was realistic before Neil Adams came along. Swan was considered like a realistic superhero artist you know, back when that term wasn't even being used, you know, but the the appeal of Swan, the reason why he was Wozniak's muse, was that he gave Superman a much more human dimension than artists like Wayne Boring, who was more caricatured, could ever give him. And Wozniak, to his credit, recognized that in Swan, that he had a much more human, realistic quality, and therefore commissioned stories that would play the swan strengths of emotion and feeling. Not the super heroic super feet. Swan could draw anything, but when we think of the swan Superman, I don't think of Superman pushing a planet. I think of Superman crying. I think of Superman, you know, standing at a window, looking off existentially in one of those stories. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Those quiet moments of just Superman standing there looking out onto the horizon and, you know, very kind of mood indigo kind of things. And that was Swan Strains and the stories that we remember. And then the morals that they had. And that's the Weisinger worldview. He was a 20th century American post-war Jew who was liberal and humanist, just like Julius Schwartz and Stan Lee and Harvey Kurtzman and all those Jews who created the superheroes and Will Eisner they all imbued their stories with a certain amount of Jewish tragedy. And that, you know, I do a whole lecture on Jews and comics. That whole aspect of Superman as this tragic figure in Swan's hands comes out of Weisinger's worldview as a 20th century Jew. That's beautiful. And it's so true. I think prior to Donner, any kind of religion in the character of Superman was subtle at best, but well, they had to be subtle. They couldn't be overt. Of course, he couldn't but say, "Hey, I'm retelling lectron. Moses' story here. I can't redo that." Uh, yeah, know. but but hold on a second. I do a whole lecture on Christ and comics because Superman is the Christ figure in comics. He is. I know. I know. I know. I'm... But because Christ himself was modeled on the Moses story because he was supposed to be the new Moses for the right. Jewish people. Right. So the idea that Superman is both the Moses myth and the Christ myth makes sense because Christ is both the Moses and Christ myth. <laughs> right. So therefore, they were both, you know, uh, firstborns, and they had to flee because, you know, all the well, stories see, are parallel. I think, I think my real problem is, is not that 
is not when an individual reads the uh, the origin of Superman and the torment it must have been for the parents to put their child in that rocket and ship it off, much like the mother of Moses must have. It just must have been a, a or the you know. or the plight of the Eastern European Jews that the, were fleeing. Exactly the immigrants, right. the, all of that. Right. It's one thing though for you to in a science fiction story or a fantasy or a fiction story to yourself draw those comparisons because you also know those stories and it's very different than for say Richard Donner and post Donner stuff to actually then continue posing Superman in Christ-like poses to have his father Jor-El practically quote verbatim passages from the human Bible to me, that's yeah, but what, way what? too you mean much. From, wait, wait, from the New Testament versus the Old Testament? From either what Testament. What here? would Krypton, what would Jor-El know of the Old Testament? Here, okay, my son, I give okay, you, I give them my last, sec. my only okay, begotten Bob, son. Bob. Yes. Hold on a second. <laughs> yes. Siegel, Siegel, who wrote this stuff, whether he was aware of what he was doing or not, again, we don't really know. Right, we don't but know. the name Cal L. Understand the suffix. The suffix L means God. That so you have Bethel. Beth means house in Hebrew. Bethel means house of God. Right. Cal L means voice of God. I don't know what Jor L means, but I'm sure Jor translates to something. Right. The point right. is, is Superman was always had this Judeo slash Christian right um, background. Whether Siegel. Forget about Schuster as the artist. Right. But whether Siegel actually was right. conscious or aware of this or not doesn't matter. You know, I, I get into this argument all the time with people when I talk about Superman being the Christ figure in comics. Oh, but Siegel was Jewish, so therefore he could never be Christ. I'm well, like, hold on a second. No. Number one, Christ was Jewish. Number Christ two, Jewish. Jews created the story of Christ. Right. Number three, number three, the idea of a Messiah, the idea that a figure should come down from God to save us, is a Jewish idea. The Christ idea is a Jewish idea. Right. I have so no problem with the idea. I, my, I think my problem is the now lack of subtlety. They're just absolutely... Well, now, okay, because now it's become de rigueur and widely known. Right. You know, the first guy to really bring this up, if I remember correctly, was Jules Pfeiffer in The Great Comic Heroes. I think he was the first modern uh, writer to bring that to comparison. To bring up this idea right. that Superman wasn't being sent from Krypton, he was being sent from Minsk, you know, <laughs> meaning like all the Jews right. that were fleeing right. from Europe and coming to America. Mm-hmm. And it was after that, that was 1965, then in 1974, that guy wrote that book on the gospel according to Superman. Right. But and then, began to see the Christological implications. And so, at that point, when Donner started writing the movie in 75, right. he drew heavily from that whole... Right, but uh, it wasn't overt in the Christopher Reeve thing. I, I, like I, I said... I, yeah, I guess, I guess not. I guess I sometimes... It wasn't overt. It, like I said, because those ideas did not come into the public discourse. I got to tell you, because as somebody that was aware of this stuff, it didn't really happen until the Marvel movies started to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. 
And then mainstream writers, any time anything in American culture makes money, it becomes newsworthy. Right. And the people writing the news, they want to know what is this thing that's making money and who created it. And lo and behold, they found out that Jews created all the superheroes. And this was only at the beginning of the century with the, the early Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire when they started to make money. That's when he started to get this rash of articles about Jews creating comics and Jews creating the superhero. You follow me? Absolutely. Absolutely. And therefore, this idea that Superman was the Christ figure and the Moses figure started to get traction. So here we are in 2017. So I would say for the past 15 years, we've had this public discourse about the Judeo-Christian implications of Superman. Right. But it all starts, I think, with Weisinger unconsciously or subconsciously imbuing that. And I'll give you a perfect example of a short story that influenced me that is endemic of the Weisinger style. And it was a little short story that appeared in the 1966 issue. It was the cover story, When Superman Tells the Truth. Remember that story? Not off the top of my head. Uh, 1966, I forget the issue, Superman 173 or 176, something like that. Superman's Day of Truth, whatever it's called. Where, to make a long story short, but it was a short story, it wasn't a book-length story, drawn by Swan Klein, of course. And um, it's basically about how Superman and Supergirl, they're flying around Metropolis, and everywhere they go, in the beginning of the story, they're telling the truth but the bitter truth, which hurts people. Mm. So Supergirl is at a Girl Scouts luncheon, and they make her fried chicken, and she bites into it, and she goes, this is the worst fried chicken I've ever had. It's disgusting. I can't even finish it. And she flies off, and the Girl Scouts are in tears. Then Superman is doing something, and Jimmy Olsen signals him with his signal watch, and Superman says to Jimmy Olsen, you know, Jimmy, I'm sick and tired of you and that signal watch of yours. You bug me. You know, I'm trying to do other crap, and, you know, you keep bugging me. And, of course, he flies off, and Jimmy's in tears. And everybody's wondering, you know, and all through the story, why are Superman and Supergirl telling, like, the hard truth that's hurting people? Well, you get to the end of the story, and they, Superman and Supergirl reunite back in the Fortress of Solitude. And it turns out, Bob, that they're honoring a Kryptonian holiday. And what is the holiday? It's a holiday to commemorate an ancient Kryptonian. And, of course, you have the classic flashback where an alien race came and enslaved Krypton. And they put them all in chains until one Kryptonian decides he's not going to take it anymore. And he's going to stand up and denounce the aliens for the bastards they are. So, of course, the aliens kill him. But by killing him, they make him a martyr. And the rest of the Kryptonians rise up and revolt and overthrow their alien overlords. And therefore, once a year, Kryptonians, the surviving Kryptonians, Superman and Supergirl, have to tell the truth. Because the Kryptonian told the truth about the alien, you know, we hate you, you suck, you know. And of course they killed them. But guess what the Kryptonian's name was? Val Or, V A L hyphen O R, Val Or. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Okay. So that was the story. Typical DC, the little gimmick. They're mm-hmm. celebrating, blah, blah. So 
Why is that story so endemic of the Weisinger worldview? And? Bob, you tell me. No, you tell me. You're on a roll okay. here. Finish it okay. up. That's a good thought. Okay, Finish so, yes, yeah, so, why is it? Because, look, that's a whole Jewish thing there. The martyr in chains rising up and speaking. That's what Christ did. Now, whoever wrote that story, it could have been Leo Dorfman. Right. You know, they were they, he was Jewish. Who knows? Who knows? Right. I don't know who wrote that story. You'd have to, you know, go into the comic book database. Yeah, I'll look it up. But the point is, is that's the wiser worldview, a Judaic idea, and this idea of commemorating it. That's what the history of Judaism, that's what the Bible is. It's, the Old Testament is commemorating the history of events. So this idea that once a year you would celebrate Val or that's a very Jewish idea. You see that? Absolutely. It's beautiful, too. I and remember the story now as you said right. that, too. And yeah. the point is, I, and what did that teach us eight-year-olds reading it? That you've got to stand up and fight and tell the truth. This is what we love about the Silver Age comics that we grew up with. They were heroic. They taught us how to be heroes. But not necessarily in an overt See, you'd have to talk to the writer who wrote that right. story. Right. You see, that's my point exactly, uh, Arlen, is that the difference then and the difference now in the way that that right. story well, now, is yes, told. Because we're so much enlightened and, you know, we're so worldly now. But back then, the comics then, messages like that were embedded but it's just like the history of children's books and children's fables. Right. Behind these seemingly innocuous stories are deep, you know, meanings of philosophy and life and death, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The grim fairy tales and all that stuff. And you don't so even know story, that until you're an adult. Right. So a story like, oh, and let me tell you another thing. The idea that Valor would sacrifice his life by standing up and telling off the aliens, you know, Jews celebrate Purim, which is all about back in 500 B.C. when the Jews were in exile, and they lived in this Syrian, wherever the hell they lived, and everybody had to bow down to the chancellor, or whatever he was, Haman, and the one Jew who didn't bow down was Matthias, or whatever his name was. No, uh, Mordecai. Right, Mordecai. And his right. niece is Esther. And Esther's the one that saves the Jews. And the Jews read, you know, the Megillah every year during Purim. And it's one of the books of the Bible. But the point is, is, is that Mordecai stood up. And that's why the edict to kill all the Jews was made, because a Jew stood up. So that's a recurring theme in Judaism, that the Jews didn't bow down to the Romans. That's why Jesus came along, and by standing up and sacrificing life, if you know you're Christ, mm -hmm. the greatest thing a man can do for his friends is to lay down his life for his friends. That comes right out of the New Testament. So my point is that aspect, whoever, write, whoever wrote that story for Weisinger, whether it was Weisinger's idea that a writer just wrote up, whether it was subconscious or unconscious or conscious, we don't really know and we'll never know. Right. But the bottom line is, in that little eight-page story, is a lot of Judeo-Christian history and ideas about standing up for the truth, speaking your mind, fighting back, laying down your life. You know, that's heavy shit for an eight-year-old. And yet, they did it for us, 
And here we are 50 years later talking about the impact it made on us. Oh, absolutely. And no, shaped can... us into the people we are today. I learned, you know, everything I needed to know I learned in, uh, you know, kindergarten or whatever those books are. <laughs> right. Everything we needed to know we learned from those Silver Age comics of Weisinger, Schwartz, and Stan Lee, a bunch of 20th century Jews who were humanist liberals. You know, know what I mean? I know, I know exactly what you mean. It certainly helped me in situations. It helped a whole generation. We became the people we became. Scientists became scientists because of the Julius Schwartz science fiction comics. I know policemen and cops. I have testimonials in my files. They became firemen and cops because of the superheroes they read mm -hmm. when they were kids. Subconscious or unconscious, all those DC guys, Bob Kaniger. Jewish, humanist, liberal, Kubert, those war comics had a Judeo-Christian thing running through them. Yes. It was yes. all these 20th century, Harvey Kurtzman, you know, the list, this is what my lecture Jews and Comics is about. All that stuff, Krigstein, Kurtzman, Elder, Feldstein, you know, it's like a who's who of 20th century American Jews. And they created the comics and the heroes and the stories that were all about fighting for what's right, standing up for what's good, sacrificing yourself for your friends and loved ones, what it means to be a hero. What more can you say? Well, I think... I Jack think... Kirby, I mean, you know, Yaakov Kurtzberg, the list that goes on and on. It, it really is staggering how many and and from uh, geographically a small area. Of course. Well, it's again, Hollywood. Listen, it all comes out of the New York area. Rock and roll, movies, comics are great 20th century art forms all come out of New York, New basically. York. And what is New York? Where the Eastern European Jews who fled Europe because of anti-Semitism came. Yeah. How ironic is that? That is the beauty, I think, of the potential. <laughs> you know, this Einstein thing was on last night, this new thing about Einstein by Ron Howard. And, you know, Germany would have won World War II if they didn't hate their Jews, you know, because Einstein, everybody left. Yep. The ones that could leave left. Yep. The point is, is where do they all come to? America. America. And they gave us the superheroes who would stand up against the very European Christian anti-Semitic oppression that was in their DNA. Standing up against the majority is a Jewish idea. See, you know, the guys that wrote uh, Neil Gabler, you know, the Jews created Hollywood. Right. The American dream as we know it, that you can come here and succeed without the baggage of history, without the class system. That became the American dream, but it's really a Jewish American dream. It's the dream of assimilation. So the things that Hollywood created that became the American dream, the Frank Capra little guy against the corporation and all that, mm -hmm. those are all Jewish ideas that became American ideas. You follow me? Absolutely. And it ended up in comics. Exactly. And particularly the, the turmoil after World War One, leading up to right. World War II. Of course. Immigration well, into this which country. Created, right. Which created all those immigrants came out of the 19, uh, you know, the great immigration surge. Well, you know, people my generation, most of us got into Superman actually with George Reeves before comic books. It, yeah, but Weisinger was the story editor 
of the Superman series. That was something that surprised me because he doesn't okay, get so credit for that. So here's the thing to take away, Bob. Everything that the mainstream public knows or thinks about Superman comes from basically the Reeves Superman show, the first Christopher Reeve movie, and the Kurt Swan comics. And all those three things, in a sense, all come out of the Weisinger Superman and his worldview, which was benevolent, which was all those Jewish ideals, the Christ-like aspect of Superman. Again, conscious or subconscious, it's there. It's there. No question it's there. And when you add all those things together with the realistic, pleasing to the eye look of Kurt Swan, you get a kind of a magical product. And when you match it with a great story, you know, one out of every 50 (laughs) Weisinger stories, you get the stuff that affected people. Right. Well, that's one of the things that I hear so much from younger people is, oh, that silly Silver Age, silly this. And they'll mention something, you know, Jimmy Olsen turning into Turtle Boy or something. As if that was... Well, those are the other uh, 25 to 50 stories I'm talking about. Yes, exactly. And that's what I try to tell them is that, yes, there were a lot of those funny fantasy stories written for seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids. But... 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 (laughs) <laughs> you right, know? Well, what was Sturgeon's Law? Isn't 90% of everything shit and 10% is the good that we're supposed to seek out? Yes. So, Weisinger's run, 90% of his run was shit. Yeah. But 10% of it is the stuff we're still talking about. The death of Superman, the return to Krypton, <laughs> the day Superman told the truth. Some All of those, those episodes of the George Reeves I mean, the Superman that, show. The stuff that came out what? during his tenure as editor of Superman. I mean, it goes from Brainiac to the Bottle City of Candor to the Superman Red, Superman Blue, <laughs> Supergirl, Superboy. Right. I mean, it, the list is... Which was all staggering. written and created by the guys that did Captain Marvel. Their brand extension of Captain Marvel Jr. and Captain Marvel Girl and all that stuff. All Mary that. Marvel and... Right. You know, DC sues them for infringement. They end up finally winning. <laughs> and then what does DC do? Kind of like America becoming friends with Japan and Germany after the war. Mm-hmm. DC basically hires everybody that did Captain Marvel to come over to... That was the Weisinger Silver Age Revolution, is that all those innovations was basically knocking off Captain Marvel. Well, it was a brilliant move, and they had the money to do it. And um, right, well, I don't know if they, they needed the money. It's not that they had the money. You got to remember, this was the fifties. Everybody was out of work because of the comics code. All those Captain Marvel guys were out of work. Right, but what I Otto meant by that is that DC, DC was able to buy those characters. Of course, because and, DC was one of the last publishers left standing exactly. because they had Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Exactly. And then, yeah, so they were able to hire Otto Binder and Kurt Schaffenberger, and all those ex-Captain Marvel guys. Mm-hmm. But all those Silver Age innovations are basically Otto Binder doing a brand extension for Superman like he did for Captain Marvel. Absolutely. And you just mentioned somebody else that I think uh, tends to get overlooked and didn't get as much love as I think he should for the Silver Age, and that's Kurt Schaffenberger. Well, the more you talk to people, once the conversation gets going, you'll see... He is very well loved because, again, the comics that he drew, I mean, I barely read Lois Lane because even as a kid, I thought they were stupid. (laughs) But I always, even as a kid, admired the the Shabber Arbor because it was 
it had style, it was solid, it was consistent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Kurt Schaffenberger had a style. Those artists in those days, they, you know when they talk about Hollywood, they had faces then? Right, right. The, the artists we grew up with all had styles, even if some of them we didn't like, like right. Mike Sikowski or Don Heck. Right. They all had distinctive styles that you could spot 20 feet away on the newsstand. Mm-hmm. You I, knew a Kurt Schaffenberger Superman from a Wayne Boring Superman. Oh, and absolutely. you knew instantly. You know, those Mike Sikowski and, and guys that now everybody seems to have retroactive love for. Right. But back then, it was like, oh, Sikowski sucks. Why can't <laughs> Carmen Infantino draw the JLA? You yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. But I mean, now everybody loves Mike Sikowski. Oh, it's, it's... When he was alive, all he felt was that people hated him. Yeah. That must Isn't be that so sad. Far. That's terribly sad for these guys. They just—it's just just so sad. Well, the ones who were loved didn't know they were loved, but the ones that were hated, they knew they were hated. How sad is that? That's very sad. Uh, I think recently the story of the last couple of years of Al Plastino's last few years on the planet. Now, Al Plastino is an interesting. Why? What, what was sad about well, that? Well, he lost the uh, the original artwork from. Um, one of his, oh right that yeah. that Kennedy story the yeah. Kennedy story but I think an interesting he was never one of my favorite artists but I think I the, hated him yeah but I think the interesting thing about him is that yes he did like all the others have his own style but you can right. see that in a period of time it looked like at one point they said no you need to draw like Wayne Boring so there was this period of time where well it he was like really he, instructed to knock off Kurt Swan. Well, later that was Plastino's job for most of the Silver Age was to knock off Kurt Swan. That was what I was going to. Is that when he, he was started? At, but even as a kid, we didn't know Al Plastino. No, no we idea. didn't even know the name Kurt Swan. No. But the minute we turned the cover, one of the beautiful Swan Klein covers. And we got Al Plastino. Oh, it was we a, knew it was yeah. like, oh, we got the oh. shitty Superman artist. Well, a couple of years later at DC, we'd open up a beautiful Neil Adams Batman cover, and we'd find Bob Brown drawing the uh, story underneath. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, Enough uh, said. Yeah. But uh, but that was comics then. That we, was comics. Even then. as a kid, we knew the guys doing the covers couldn't always do the interiors. Right. You know. Yeah, I know. It, it's just it's just staggering. But I do want to thank you again, Arlen, for your time. You've given me a couple of hours here. This is Oh, just, not at all. It's been my pleasure, it's, Bob. It's just been a, a real, real treat. We got some new information, and I want to just thank you so much for this. No, Bob, it really, it's been my pleasure at any time. Now, tell these people where they can find you, and if you actually want them to find you, uh, to join some of your Facebook pages. You're, you've got several yeah. pages there of, of some terrific stuff, regular stuff, artwork, stories, all kinds of great stuff. Tell these people where they can find you. Right. Well, the first source would be my website, which is basically my name, arlenschumer.com. Just make sure you spell it right. S-C-H-U-M-E-R, like Chuck or Amy. And my first name, A-R-L-E-N. But my website pretty much has my whole life and career up there. But then I run a couple of Facebook groups about comic book history. One on Neil Adams called the Neil Adams Almanac. One on Jack Kirby called Jack Kirby and Company. And one about the Silver Age in general, based kind of around my book and all the artists in the Silver Age. Uh, so they, you know, people can Facebook friend me, join my groups, and... Um, 
They can buy my Silver Age book, buy on my website. All the information is right there when they land on my homepage. Okay, there you go. A little talk with Arlen Schumer. Wow. I, I had a blast doing that with Arlen, and I, uh, I I hope to get him back on here. There's so many other topics, and, and since the Silver Age is where I love to be, even though the show is not specifically a Silver Age show, I know that uh, the last few episodes I've been focusing on the Silver Age. Some of the comics with the the Luther show, and you know, I have I have spent some time in the Silver Age because, to be honest, that's where my heart is. Now, there, there's so much Superman over the last eighty years, but you know, when I open a Superman comic, when I see a Kurt Swan or a Kurt Schaffenberger or even a Wayne Boring drawing, I think, ah, home. Those are my Supermen right there. Those guys, uh, particularly Kurt Swan. Okay, oh, by the way, that terrific story Arlen was telling came from Superman number 176, April 1965. That's the cover date. It actually shipped February of 1965. There were three stories in that particular issue. Revenge of the Super Pets, Tales of Green Kryptonite number two, and the cover story, Superman's Day of Truth. You'll you'll remember the cover. Uh, well, some of you will remember the cover. Uh, it's a courtroom scene, but Superman's standing up front at a blackboard and in front of all the people back in the courtroom and uh, at the blackboard and Superman is writing my secret identity is so oh and the writer by the way was leo dorfman <laughs> so good job kurt swan george klein of course doing the art 12 cents 1965 terrific story and told really really well here by arlen schumer thank you incredible so once again thanks for listening i do appreciate it send email bob at supermanforever.com also go to itunes if that's how you still do podcasts or you know maybe even if you don't go over to itunes <laughs> and uh leave a little review that would be fun I'd like to get a review that would that would be a lot of fun so uh thank you again next time on the superman forever radio podcast possibly my favorite villain of the Superman rogues gallery. Yeah, I know, I know. We've already done Luther, so you know it's not Luther. Oh, I'll spoil it. Brainiac. Yes, I love, love, love Brainiac. And almost every uh, uh, version of him. There's one that I really did not care for where almost everything else in that particular area I really enjoyed, except what they did with Brainiac. But anyway, I'll be talking about Brainiac next time not totally silver age either so i mean we have to start there because that's where he started but anyway next time is all about brainiac thanks again we'll see you soon Superman is based on the original character appearing in Superman magazine and action comics. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster and is copyright DC Comics. Superman.